Welcome to A Thousand Tiny Steps. I'm Barb Higgins, and in this podcast, I'll share personal stories of great joy and tragedy and the steps that brought me there. I have become adept at tracing them backward to find the origin of an event, good or bad, that has affected my life. I have gone from being on top of the world with Division I All-American success to being unable to get out of bed with the grief of losing a child and everything in between. I am painfully honest, which can make people uncomfortable, but discomfort brings growth and oftentimes tragedy brings joy. So tie, buckle, slip on, release up your shoes and join me as we begin our thousand tiny steps. Hey everybody, it's Barb Higgins here, beginning episode 50 of A Thousand Tiny Steps. So I've gone through one through 10 and 11 through 20 and 21 through 30, and you know the rest. Here we are now starting the, the 50s of my podcast episode. That means I'm just two episodes after this away from a full year, and I'm pretty excited about that. Time is funny for me. Ever since Molly's death, and maybe before, I don't know, time often is, is inconsistent or makes no sense. And it gets measured, you know, I've talked about this before. So I'm sitting here today and it, it's muggy, but it's not your typical last five episodes of sunny hot weather that I'm sitting inside a room with the windows closed, giving the podcast. It's a bit cloudy. I'm recording it the day before we go to get Gracie. So I'm in one of these mindsets of trying to get everything done, which is fine. It's actually when I am most productive, which sort of makes sense because when I think about when I am most productive, when I have good productivity, when I'm a bit under the gun, as I've been looking back over those you know, 1989 to 2005, a really big chunk of my life, a huge chunk of my life where I went from, you know, leaving my 20s and entering actual, the actual workforce and such to having children and now being in my 40s. You know, that you feel like two different lives at that time. My mother was only 21 years older than me. So I thought she was old. She was in her 30s. You know, I look back on memories I have and I think of her as my mother and which means old. And so it's, it's interesting now that I'm I'm the age that she was in so many memories. You know, I have them more and more. Time is just funny as is age. So this episode is going to focus on steps I took and growth I had in my professional life and how those of you who know me know I've had some ups and downs in my professional life. I continue to have them sometimes. I remember my brother Rick once telling me that's why I don't work for anyone but myself. <laughs> if you are your own boss, of course, you can do great things, but you also could nosedive, I'm quite sure. At any rate, I don't want to offend cocktail waitresses because I loved my waitress time, but I hadn't, teaching in Woburn was my very first actual professional job where I had to sign a contract and I was getting on salary and, you know, all of, you know, it was like, felt like a real job. I love waitressing and there are times when I think I would like to go back and waitress just for kicks and yucks. I've waitressed at several restaurants and loved it. That's for another time, a different podcast episode, Barb the Waitress. But I'm going to talk about moving up here because one of the main things that made me move up here was the realization that I couldn't continue to live the life I was living and hold down an actual job. And I didn't have the wherewithal yet or the ability to not drink in a way that was harmful to me. I was very caught up in all the social mayhem of Boston and all that I was involved in. And so that was why I moved up here. And so I have struggled with every job I've had. And let me be clear, not in the quality with which I do the job, Ever, never have any of my job struggles been my job performance. It's always been behavioral piece or a boundary issue or a disagreement with somebody. It was never because I was a poor waitress or a poor teacher or 
a poor telephone answerer, whatever the job might have been, never, ever, ever was I ever asked to leave a job or given an improvement plan based on my performance as an educator. So in thinking about when I was most happy, probably some of my happiest teaching years were in this period of time, the entire last decade of the 1900s, and then the first five or six years, actually first 10 years, quite frankly, right up until 2010. So 20 years, and I had 21 years in the district. It wasn't until my very last year that things got ugly there. But I had several jobs from coming up to Concord to here, three different experiences with teaching. And so I thought I would just sort of talk about my growth through those, not like to give you the the history of my jobs, big deal, who cares, but more to talk about in the big picture of a thousand tiny steps to the beginning of the end of Molly. What are some of the things I, the pieces of myself did I carry into the jobs that I had and why they did or didn't work? I will reiterate and go back to for the 900th time, the body keeps the score. One of the biggest symptoms of people who had trauma early on in life or a very traumatic experience anywhere is self-sabotage. That whole feeling, I talked about this a ton just recently, where things get good and that's where the anxiety comes. Oh no, things are fine. Oh no. Oh, the sea is calm. That means a storm is coming. Well, of course a storm is coming. Eventually a storm will come. Has nothing to do with the fact that the sea is calm. But traumatized people connect these things in a way that frankly is not very good. And so when I look back now at the jobs I had, why they did or didn't work, and how I changed from them. (laughs) What's interesting is what I do is I change jobs a lot. I didn't necessarily change myself. Well, I'll start with Woburn because it was the last two years I lived in Boston, right? And it was where I was working before I came here. So I taught at a middle school for a year, and then I had a very, very big disagreement with a fellow teacher, and she thought I wasn't doing a good job, and I wasn't like her. And quite honestly, I probably wasn't doing a great job. I had great rapport with kids, I got very involved in the activities at that middle school. It was called Joyce Junior High School. It was in Woburn, Massachusetts. They had an indoor track attached to the school way back when. I was really running well at that time. And there was an eighth grade boy that was a great runner. And so I agreed to race like the top five girls and boys. Well, the school made this huge event. They collected money at the door, the indoor track, the stands were full. I remember that morning I was had breakfast with Seb, Bob Seveny, who was my coach at the time. I think my boyfriend too, actually. And I felt nauseous, like I was going to throw up. I was so nervous. And I ran this mile and I ran, I ran a 5'11". I think the eighth grade boy out kicked me and the stands went wild. So I did things like this. I choreographed a dance for a talent show to the Grease song, We Go Together. And I did a wonderful job and, you know, hot glue gunned felt poodles on the skirts. Like, who am I? So I really got into it. But I do know that with special ed, the paperwork is such a key piece. And what I needed was a personal assistant. I still need a personal assistant. If you could see my office. You could see why special ed might not have been a great idea. But I knew from early on that I wanted to be a special ed teacher. So the following year after that middle school job, I taught an elementary school in the same district, the Clapp Elementary School, right on the lake. Horn Pond, it was called. And I taught elementary school and there was a teacher there. She was the principal who said, you don't smell at the kids until Christmas. I'm sorry, that's, you just have to, she was just a believer. I don't know. I don't know what was broken inside of her. We, We ended up getting along fine. And at the end of that year, after a lot of trouble with her, you know, I stood up for myself and fought for myself. I was offered a job. I could have stayed and I decided not to. I, I resigned and had a good recommendation from my special ed supervisor, Rob McCardle. I wonder where he is now. And I came home. And so this had me reflect and ponder, you know, when any of these upheavals, at least for me, they make me think about things. And I remember when I was coming home, a part of me felt like I was stepping backwards and it's hard to explain. It almost felt like a failure, like, oh, I'm going back. Really, it shouldn't feel that way at all, but it does. I know Gracie has a bit of 
misgivings about coming home from Disney. I think she felt like she was on her way and now she's going back. And the term back, it's better to say I'm returning to, I'm returning to conquer. You know, the word back sometimes has a negative connotation to me, like you're slipping backwards. I started to really think about, as I was applying for jobs up here, what I really wanted to do. And, and I applied sort of late teaching wise, it was summertime, when I finally really truly realized I didn't want to stay at Woburn and teach there. And then I wanted to return to Concord. When I really pondered, all right, Barbara Jean Higgins, why are you in education? Do you want to stay in education? Do you want to go home and just get another waitressing job and see what happens? Like, what do you want to do? And I felt very compelled to get a teaching job. And I applied for several jobs that were not in schools. Teaching jobs were hard to come by back then, even special ed. So I applied at Second Star, which is an alternative high school. I applied to be a teacher in a residential facility for young people who had you know, mental illness or addiction or abuse or whatever. So I wouldn't have students for a long period of time, but I would be their teacher while they were in the facility. I applied at a hospital to be an educational tutor for children who had chronic illness and that were in and out of the hospital a lot. These were very interesting you know, ideas for me. And I ended up taking the job at Second Start. And the main reason I took it is I really liked the people that did the interviews. I really clicked well with those people. Hindsight tells me it was not a good job for me to take. And, and, and it wasn't long into the school year that I realized I was teaching with somebody that I didn't really know how to work with. I just sort of let him do everything. Like I just sort of sat with the students and listened while he taught. Like when I look back on it now, I realized what I realized is it made me feel really powerless. I didn't really know what I was doing. And rather than just ask for help and say, I don't know what I'm doing. I just tried to make believe I knew what I was doing. You know, when my co-teacher Jeff was absent, he would leave me detailed plans. Sometimes he would leave me no plans and I would, you know, sort of have to shoot from the hip. <laughs> I am also very good with my ADD nature at shooting from the hip. And this, this would prove to also be an issue for me as an educator. I came up to Concord in fall of 89 and I worked for a year at Second Start. So for those of you not local to Concord or familiar with Concord, Second Start is run through the United Way and it's an alternative high school. You go half a day, three and a half hours, I think a morning session and an afternoon session. You can choose or get placed in one. And students from surrounding communities go there. The districts pay for the students to go. And the academic work and things are, are dealt with there. Some students remain part of the day at their high schools. Other students get jobs and they just need to be away from their high school. So not surprisingly, most of these students had pretty significant issues, behavioral, abuse, addiction, all sorts of things that made them unsuccessful in school. I actually drove this boy, his name was Gordon Perry, and I drove him to school. He was under house arrest and needed a ride. And I shared with his actual classroom teacher for several weeks, we drove him to and from school. And he was the person involved in the fatal shooting of a police officer here in New Hampshire. And he's in prison for life now. Not all of them had those issues, but, but I think back, you know, to my alone time in the car with Gordon, I never once was afraid of him. I will say that. You know, it wasn't long after high school that that happened. So I was with those types of students. Those types of students are the ones I love the most. And that relates back to my brother, Jonathan. Now, Jonathan <laughs> isn't a troubled student, but Jonathan had really, really pronounced ADHD from really from birth. And, you know, he was born in 1969. So the 1970s, his first 10, 11 years of life, he was over-medicated. He was misdiagnosed. It was no one's fault per se. It was just new. ADHD was really, really just a new thing and nobody really knew what to do. And Ritalin worked, Silert. There were these different medicines at the time. Central nervous system stimulants. They calm we ADHD folks down. Jonathan struggled all the time. And I was alone a lot with my brother and sister. My older brother would be off 
I don't know where my mother and father were, but there were, there were just a lot of times that I was alone babysitting Jonathan and Johanna. And they were so close and so tight and they did everything together. And Jonathan just struggled. And, and the more he struggled, the more frustrated he got. And then he would want to control things. And of course, when you're frustrated and you can't control anything. And, and I can remember him just sometimes just crying and crying and crying. And of course, I was just the older sister, so I didn't always know what to do. I didn't know how to help him. Sometimes I made it worse. It was, but I, I do remember that I also often felt like a square peg in a round hole in school. I just never really felt like I fit in. I did until the abuse started. And that's when I really, everything shifted in my head. And I had this big giant secret I was carrying around. And I just never, I never quite felt like I fit in with like the popular kids. And I was always on those fringes all the way through. But I remember as a youngster really worrying about Jonathan. So I decided early on, like middle school, high school, that I would go to school and be a teacher. I wanted to be a special ed teacher. And I wanted to work with children that had ADHD because I didn't want kids like my brother to hate school. My mother did a phenomenal job with him. So when he was in middle school, he really wanted to, he got a great case manager, a guy named Bill Hall, phenomenal teacher in the Concord School District for a long time. And Jonathan and Mr. Hall really clicked. He did a wonderful, wonderful work with Jonathan. We also held Jonathan back a year. He repeated sixth grade. So sixth grade was when you then went on to Runlet. He did like a postgraduate year at Melville School with Roger Brooks as principal, another phenomenal human being. And he had Mrs. Methvin for his teacher. My mother was willing, and my, my both parents, I guess, were very, very willing to really bend the normal routine of education and meet Jonathan's needs. I know that in middle school one year, he needed to go off that medication. And so, of course, you can't, can't send a whirling dervish into a middle school. <laughs> Big trouble awaits. And so he was homeschooled. He spent part of the day learning from home. And Jonathan being as smart as he is, not a problem. So when he was 18, he signed himself out. He's like, I'm done. I'm dropping out. I'll get a GED. And he went on to get a GED and he went into the Navy and he has a PhD now. So from GED to PhD. But it was Jonathan who really inspired in me a need and a desire to be a teacher. So when I went to BU, I majored in elementary ed and special ed. And then I had some eligibility left with my running. And so I had got a free postgraduate year. I did a master's degree in one year, piled all the classes in, adaptive physical education. So and health. So my education is all around teaching and it's teaching special ed kids and normal kids. And in my career, the students I attract to me are the ones that were like the students at Second Start. The problem I think for me at Second Start is that's all that was there. It was a very, a very specific population of students. It wasn't like a handful of those kids along with a handful of the, you know, the jocks, along with a handful of the really super smart sciencey kids, along with a handful of the goth kids, you know, like when you go to a high school, when you look at a classroom of 15 or 20 people, you have a wide variety of social constructs and, and everything else. And so that was sort of one basic thing. And that meant every day, everybody has something that they were upset about. It was just a group of kids that really struggled. Having said that, while Second Start wasn't the ideal place for me to work, and I lasted just one year, and I received a nice recommendation, and I wasn't fired so much as, look, we really don't think this is a good fit. And it wasn't a good fit. It really wasn't. I was just in the wrong place. I still keep in touch with so many of my Second Start students. It's wonderful. Carrie plays the guitar and sings. Derek, he also plays guitar and sings, I think. <laughs> Derek, he's wonderful, Derek. Big Tall Dan, BTD, Big Tall Dan. He lives in Concord still, and I run to him now and then. Jen, you know, all these names just come to mind for me. You know, and Megan, that's where I met Meg. So I have wonderful memories and wonderful connections from my time at Second Start. I do not keep in touch with anyone that worked there <laughs> at all, which is also pretty interesting. I think maybe a lot of them moved away and left the area, but 
I've talked before about how I never, ever sort of fit in with the other staff. I always really was always really connected to the students. And that was the case there. So the summer after that job was the summer that, you know, I was dating Chaz and he was in the far west at Yellowstone. So I applied in Concord. There was a middle school teaching job. The woman that interviewed me was Chris Rath, and she had been my advisor at BU. She was getting her doctorate when I was getting my undergrad. And I brought all this Stevenson reading stuff because it was this reading program that we used in Woburn and I loved it and, and all this. And she, she sort of smiled and she goes, this job here, this one isn't right for you. Walker School needs a, needs a special ed teacher, an LD specialist still there. And she really set it up. And I believe she got me the job, which, which is interesting based on how she was ending my career. I had this wonderful job interview with Bob Silva and Donna Pally and Rosemary Duggan. I think maybe Barb Franzine was there. All of these people were working in the district at the time. Bob Silva was the assistant superintendent. He was the assistant principal at Concord High when I was in high school. And I loved coming back and seeing him. So I got hired at Walker School. In my first year there, we had a principal named Rosemary. And it was her final year of being a principal. And, and then she left and Clint Cogswell came. So Rosemary and I had, we just had the one year. And so she was, she gave me good feedback. And I felt like I was doing well. It's a new job. I'm getting to know everybody. And I do know that I was overwhelmed. They only allotted four days, 80%. And it was Walker School, K through six. And I had a caseload of like 45 kids, which you can't service 45 kids in four days. So what I would do is I would go five days a week and I would arrive a little bit late and leave a little bit early. Like I had shortened days. Some were, get there on time and leave early. Others would get there late and leave on time. Like, so it was, it was just tricky. And I also started coaching that year. My first year back, I, I didn't do any coaching. I was just at second start. And so I went and got myself hired to coach girls cross country. And I talked about Kristen Wentworth, one of the runners on that first team. And so there I was teaching and coaching in the district that I grew up in. At the time, I wished I was teaching at Kimball School because that was where I went to school. And I wonder sometimes how things might've been different had I started there. But what I can say about Walker School, at the time, it was the only school in Concord, except maybe Rumford School, but there were two elementary schools that nobody took a bus to get there. Everybody could walk. It was a true neighborhood school. We would have coffee for parents and the kindergarten parents, and they would stay. They would stay and talk outside and chat and commiserate. And then their kids would be done with kindergarten. They'd stay the whole day. I really miss that for the students in that neighborhood in Concord. As wonderful as, as our combined elementary schools are, my job-stealing schools, <laughs> I feel sometimes that the children in those neighborhoods miss out the most when they have to take a bus to some other place to go to school. And having the school right there was wonderful for them. And, and that community was a phenomenal community. And the building, big, beautiful building. So I really settled into my teaching career there. Clint was not so easy on me. And, and so I was coaching in that first year, I coached three seasons. And then I think I stopped doing spring track and just did cross country and indoor for a while. And then I switched and I stopped doing indoor and did cross country and outdoor. You know, I switched around with the track and field and then did a number of years, all three. So I would spend hours at night, you know, organizing my track and cross country practices and who's going to do what where. I did not spend that amount of time on correcting work and organizing IEPs, you know, individual plans for my special ed students and prepare for meetings. Those are things that I would try to do during the school day. And so I had a full-time teaching assistant with me. And so I would set up groups for her and she was wonderful. Terry Lightford. And I would sit at my desk and try to do all the paperwork. Well, and I remember at the time thinking it should be the other way around. Like my assistant should be doing the paperwork and I should be doing the teaching. But the paperwork was persnickety and nitpicky and, and it had to be a certain way. And, and I was terrible at it. And this was the one time, it was like two or three years into my teaching, 
a parent came in and wanted to see a folder and I had the child's folder in my classroom and I hadn't returned it and I wasn't in the building. So they couldn't find it. So they went up to my classroom and of course I had put it in a drawer and locked it, but they couldn't find it. And there were no cell phones back then. There was just no texting me saying, where's the file? This type of thing wouldn't happen today because you can always get in touch with each other now. So I got in, in a bit of trouble and I had a big performance improvement plan. And, and I remember cross country was over and I spent, I stayed at school until midnight for like two weeks and organized every folder. I went through everything and made sure everything was correct and took notes and, and oh my gosh, I really, really worked hard. And I remember Mr. Mr. Cogswell Clint telling me that he really saw the improvement, he appreciated it. And his comment to me was, if you spent as much time on your teaching as you did on your coaching, you know, you'd be phenomenal. And it wasn't that I wasn't phenomenal in the interactions. I could teach anybody anything. I really could make kids understand things. But it was more, you know, I was teaching in the middle of piles of books and papers, like I'm delivering this podcast amidst piles of papers and books. That was difficult for me. And that continued along all through my tenure at Walker School. And I was at Walker School for about, for 15 years. And right around the time that I switched to the high school, professionally, so I had Molly and Gracie. Professionally, I was going through a bit of a, panic. Like, is this it? And I had written myself a note, little note to be opened in 15 years. And it was things I wanted to have accomplished, accomplished in 15 years. And when I first came back here, I was insistent that I wouldn't stay here. I still felt that way. And what I wrote was, I will not teach in the same school for 30 years. Well, now, given all I've lost, I would love to be finishing. Actually, I'd be finishing like my 15th year at the high school, like 30 years total. I'm heartbroken that I lost all of that. But when I read that piece of paper, I had a bit of a panic. When I was at Walker School and I took my maternity leaves and all of this, several times I indicated I wanted a grade level and Clint just refused to do it. It hurt my feelings a lot. And he said, you know, it's not that I don't think you can teach. I just don't think you're organized enough. I don't think you have the classroom management skills required to do this effectively. Now, I would have to disagree with him in the sense of doing it effectively because I taught at Concord High School and it was 125 students every nine weeks, 25 kids an hour, five times a day. My room was a disaster, but my grades were in on time. They were accurate. My comments were up to date. I was able to do it. You can't be a track coach with a hundred kids on your team, have them all spread out in Memorial Field, doing a variety of things, you know, throwing shot puts and javelins and running and then running off site and not have good management skills. So it was very, very frustrating for me. And it made me, it gave me a bit of a bad feeling like I don't want to stay. If I can't have a classroom, then I don't want to stay. And it was right around that time that Gene Connolly had, became the principal of Concord High School. And when he found out that I had a, a degree in health and they were losing a health educator, he encouraged me to apply. So I did a practice interview with a special ed job there. Hindsight tells me I should have taken that job. I had a wonderful interview and I, because I was relaxed and I, and I didn't care. And I knew that the people that were liked me. My health interview was awful, awful, just awful. And so... I knew that those people didn't really want me. I knew I probably wasn't their first choice. And I do believe that I was given the job because Jean said to them, we're hiring her. I actually know that to be true. I was just set up into a situation that was impossible to succeed. There's no succeeding when the people that you work with hate you. So Molly was born in 2003. So the rest of 2003, I didn't work. You know, I had my maternity leave. Then this summer came. Oh, three, oh, four, I was halftime at Walker School. She was just a baby. And at the end of that year, the plan was to go full-time at Walker. Or it was maybe going to take another half-time year. And I think I was going to do another half-time year and share it with, with Tracy Johnson, Tracy Hart. But I didn't. I applied for and got this health job. And so I remember at the first day of school, the opening, there's all my Walker school people. And I had this utter panic attack. And I remember running up behind Clint on the street. I don't know. I think I made a mistake. Have a good day. Like I was really, really, really freaked out that I wasn't returning to Walker school. And so... 
And I remember the first sort of week of school, that was Hurricane Katrina as well. I made it through the year. I somehow made it through the year and it wasn't easy. I didn't have any posters in my room. Nobody would share anything with me. And when I would ask the other health teacher, he would just say he didn't have anything. What belongs to the room is in the room. And I'm like, but you know, I remember Bill Whitmore was watching me teach and he goes, you're doing a wonderful job, but your room is so bare. And I said, you know, I said, I'm not going to spend money on posters, but I don't have any. Well, about halfway through that year, the other health teacher, I won't actually, I won't say his name. He was a male health teacher at about the time I was teaching there. Had left suddenly, had to leave. I actually believe his wife was ill. There was a medical emergency and he had to stop teaching. And so he had a permanent sub for the rest of the school year. And so Julie Marshall, she was hired to replace. It was my job to sort of help the sub stay on top of things and focused and all of that. That room was full of curriculum, books, articles, magazines, like multi-copies, movies, film strips, posters. Oh my gosh, we just opened and she just couldn't believe that she had a good relationship with this guy. I think she had taught biology at the high school before. And so we had a wonderful time. The remainder of that school year was phenomenal. Then they hired a third health educator because they wanted two full-time positions and Julie didn't want to be full-time. So Julie and Amy, you know, split a job and then I had a full-time job. And our classrooms were in this part of the high school that used to be used for eighth grade. When Redlet was too small to house everybody, one group of kids would spend a semester at this section of the high school. So it was downstairs. It was away from the fray. The only people that came down there were people that had classes. There were three classrooms down there, two health classrooms and the criminal justice for the CRTC. And that was it. Big hallway. It was just, oh, it was wonderful. So my second year was much, much better. And that was the year that I had my foot surgery. I had a foot surgery in, in February and then I had a hernia repair in the summer and then I had a foot surgery in November. And that was 2005, going into 2006. And that was the year, professionally speaking, that I started to, you know, I had the panic attack about just staying, you know, there. A woman that I taught with, Kate Daniels, did a sabbatical and she did a sabbatical where she still taught at the school and she created a class. And it was a class where Special ed students were paired with a regular ed student, someone that didn't have an intellectual or emotional disability, and they worked together. But it was this amazing program. In the year after she did that sabbatical, she got hired at St. Paul's and she left, and I really missed her. And I still miss her. I tell the story because it got me in, in the mindset that I should do a sabbatical. So I put one together really quickly and I went and presented it. And of course, I didn't get it, which is fine. It wasn't a worthy sabbatical. I remember Betty Holdley saying, What do you want us to be your gal Friday? You're like, it was just kind of funny. But I didn't end up getting the sabbatical, but I was in the mindset. What I'm speaking to here is that I had this undercurrent that I wasn't fulfilling my, my potential. I had all these plans and dreams. And what did I do? I came back to where I grew up and I'm teaching in the same place for 15 years. And now I'm in a new place and I need something different. And I really, I really was in a tizzy at that time. And I also, in all of my successes as a coach and my hard work as a teacher, I had this side to it that was uncomfortable. Now I'm going to absolutely switch for a minute because as much as I had my self-worth and am I a loser and I came back to Concord and all of that, I also loved what I was doing. I loved teaching. Never once, never once in any teaching job I've had, even Second Start where I was struggling so much, did I wake up and think, oh, I don't want to go to school. And I had a little quote by Robert Frost on my fridge for a long time about your vocation being your avocation. So your avocation is something you do because you love it. Like I love running. Your vocation is what you do for work. Like you are a running coach. So I love learning. I love running. I love teaching. I love coaching. And all of those things are both for me. There's a Robert Frost poem that has played a significant role in my life for a long time. And so 
I had this quote in my fridge for a long time. My vocation be my avocation, something along those lines. But it comes from this poem. And the poem is called Two Tramps in Mud Time. And it's a poem by Robert Frost. And basically, he's out digging stones out of the ground and digging a ditch and doing all of this hard work. And these two men come along who want to do it and have him pay them to do it. He's not getting paid to do it. It's his land and he loves to be outside. And the whole poem talks about how there are two things that go on. Some people do things because they can and they like it. Other people do it because they have to, they need the money. And so there's two ways to look at any task that you have to do. And the whole poem analyzes that. Again, I'll tell you the name of it. It is called Two Tramps in Mud Time. The last stanza of the poem is as follows. My object in living is to unite my avocation and my vocation as my two eyes make one in sight. And the work is played for mortal stakes. Is the deed ever really done for heaven and the future's sakes? Basically, the gist of the poem is that what he wants is for his work and his pleasure to be the same thing, to have what he does for work bring him pleasure. There are people in my life that I know think that working hard your whole life, whether or not you like your job, is what's important. And then there are others who refuse to do something they don't like. And I think sometimes it's a happy medium. I think everybody wakes up sometimes and doesn't want to go to work. I love teaching and I love coaching. And so when I'm doing those things, I know that I'm in my happiest moment. And so when I can do them as a job and get paid, it's the most amazing thing, which is why my job loss in the district. And when I get into that season of this podcast and really go into detail about what happened to me there, the loss is just profound because it wasn't like I got fired from a job I didn't like. But what I realized as I was going along, you know, the past few episodes here and talking about my professional life, I've been asked to leave every job I've had except one or two. You know, my first teaching job in Woburn, I did not return to the middle school. They put me in an elementary school and then that didn't work out. But I fought and agreed to some things and I could have stayed, but I didn't. And they were probably glad I didn't. And then I went to Second Start and I had that heartfelt conversation with Connie Adams, the principal. You're not in the right place, Barbara. This place isn't for you. And then I went to Concord School District and, you know, I didn't get asked to leave Walker School at all. I left of my own volition, but I had gotten to a point where I didn't really want to stay a special ed teacher forever there. I, you know, I regret that decision so profoundly now. I really regret going to the high school because of what happened to me with Jean and, and all the people involved in that situation. Having said that, those seven years I taught at Concord High School were phenomenal and I love it. And I will forever think of myself as a health educator. And there's a lot in my upcoming novel and, well, memoir rather. There's a lot in my upcoming memoir, as well as a novel that I have begun to outline that really call upon my working as a health educator. So those 15, 16 years, two years teaching at Woburn before I arrived, to Second Start, to Concord School District, to you know Walker School, Concord High, all of that whole progression. By the time I got to 2005, which is where this chunk of time sort of ends, my white picket fence happy years, I really did feel on the one hand, very, very, very confident and sure that this would be my job for as long as I wanted it to be. And although I had the underpinning, you know, I sat in my car when I applied for the sabbatical, cried, tears were like springing out of my eyes. Please, 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 this can't be my whole life. Please, 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 I need, you know, when I look now, I had two little girls in the house and I remember apologizing to God God, I'm not ungrateful. I love Molly and Gracie and I know I'm happy. And, you know, things had gotten tricky with Kenny. They were starting to tank a little bit financially and I, and I was starting to see that a series of decisions. Here's me helping people. Sure, Kenny, I'll help you. And financial ruin, you know, ensues. And so, and so I was in, the, in this place where, you know, I was actually just very ripe for what would end up happening to me because I was in this unsure place and unsteady place. When I look at my job history in my whole life, I was a waitress at Weeks. I didn't stay at that job. That I was let go from that. 
because I disagreed with a manager. And then I worked at McDonald's and that job I quit because they wanted me to work till midnight or something. And then I worked at Friendly's. And while I wasn't asked to leave Friendly's, I was accused of pocketing tips. It's like, what? Because you have to pull tips there. I had a big issue there. And I remember my boss at that time was Nader Hanna, whose whose son did my roof, (laughs) Tim Hanna. It was just a fun coincidence. Anyway, so there was that job. And then I went off to BU and I didn't have jobs for a while at BU, but I had summer jobs. So those were temporary. And those weren't ones that I necessarily was let go from. But I have been asked to leave a lot of jobs. And never is it because I'm a lousy waitress or a poor French fry dipper or a poor phone answer ever, ever. Always it's because either I push a boundary or I decide that a rule doesn't apply to me. In the process of me losing my job, it was very easy to take wonderful things I had done for students and make them look ugly. And that was what Chris Rath did a lot. That happened to me at Bo as well. I reached out and really helped a, a needy, needy student who was grateful for me up until the day that person was, and then the lies ensued. And it's hard for me to take, but when I look back, I realize that what I have done from job to job is change the job and not change the behavior. And what is the behavior I need to change? I think I just need to have better boundaries, not crossing into other people's spaces, better boundaries that keep me safe, putting boundaries around myself to keep others from stepping over and me getting into a situation that probably isn't a great thing. While I was teaching at Walker, when I first moved back, I also worked for a while as a waitress. I worked at Hermano's. I was taken off the schedule there and that was heartbreaking. That was a good money. And B, again, I was one of those things where I, they thought it was taking money. I'm not a thief. I've said that before. And then I worked at the Capital City Diner, which is where the common man now is in Concord. And I wore a poodle skirt, <laughs> dressed like 50s. It was so fun. Oh my God, I loved that job. Loved that job so much. But I worked two, you know, two nights a week, Friday and Saturday from 10 at night until four in the morning. You know, I'd wake up Sunday afternoon and then a work week ahead of me. So I didn't work at either of those jobs for too long because it just wasn't reasonable and it wasn't logical for me to do so. In the first few years of my teaching career, I taught in the summer. I worked for Parks and Rec a couple of summers. I worked, I did the Princeton camp. I was a car, <laughs> I was a delivery person. There was no email then. So if, if you needed something signed, you hired someone to drive the letter to the building you needed it to go to the person signed it and you drove it back. It wasn't like you could email anything or fax. Those, those machines didn't exist. That's how old I am. <laughs> so I, I remember, and then I taught summer school in the school district and I supplemented my income that way. And I remember the first summer that I didn't work and I just felt like, oh my gosh, I've arrived. I'm a grown up. <laughs> I'm not working right now. And I loved it. But when I look at every job I've had in terms of my professional career, teaching and coaching, I feel like if it's mud I'm slinging, then I love slinging mud. I love teaching and I love coaching. And it's who I am. It's like the essence of who I am. And I remember Molly and Gracie both would oftentimes tell their friends I knew everything. And, you know, I do know a lot of things, but I also know that sometimes it's the way something is said or shared that makes it sink or click. And if I have a, if I have a gift as an educator, it's that I can assess how a student needs to hear what I have to say and say it so that they understand it. And that's true in life in general. It's just very easy easy to be misunderstood. The person I butted heads with the most was Molly. She would say, I'm right. She wouldn't be able to tell me what she meant. I didn't know what she meant. Oh, we had some big fights. But she would also say, always, she would let her friends know that my mom knows everything. (laughs) And it was just sweet. But I think it's just because I was a teacher. I'm a teacher. And so when you have little kids at home, you can put teacher, you know, you had a word wall above the kitchen table. I remember Matt Finney came to visit once or to drop something off. And he's a teacher as well. And he looks up, he's like, is that a word wall? Like, yeah, it's a word wall. I am a teacher forever. And quite honestly, I'm here now trying really hard to create an online presence. I'm, you know, publishing a book soon. 
I've had this TV commercial opportunity. You know, I think it's time for me to step out and make the world my classroom, you know, so to speak, as opposed to, you know, going to a building and being in a room with a group of kids, but I miss it. I miss it. I remember when I ran for school board and Chris Rath was like, well, what are your goals? I said, my goal is to retire from this district. And she looked at me and she goes, well, I have no doubt that you will. And I would, I would love to, I would love to conclude my actual teaching career with another teaching position in our district. If that doesn't make sense to some of you listening, it, you know, it doesn't always make sense to me either. I love what I'm doing now, but I do find, I feel I need a lot of support <laughs> to make it happen. And that's because I've just been used to going in and doing what I'm told. But let me address that statement right there. One of the main reasons I would have trouble with jobs is I don't do what I'm told or I don't do it exactly. I, I always say rules are meant to be bent. You know, they're bendy. Sometimes rules aren't bendy. Well, I would never break or ignore a rule that was around childhood safety or appropriateness or that kind of thing. I just sometimes knew kids needed a break or they needed to lend an ear. And so when I coached cross country, so I had, you know, I had a Facebook page for all my cross country kids so that we could, that's how they all communicated. And, you know, I took some heat for that. Now social media is a big piece of how everyone communicates. You can't not use social media, but it's still, there's still this, this idea that, you know, it's a boundary that teachers and students shouldn't cross. And it's, and it's tricky. You know, where is the, where is the boundary now? It's one of those invisible ones. So I'll wrap up here. When I left Concord in 1981, I was a high school graduate who'd run a really fast mile and I had no idea what I was going into. And I can't wait to talk about all those college years because those were fun, fun times. And maybe I'll wrap up this season with those years. I don't know. But I came back eight years later. I returned to Concord eight years later with two bachelor's degrees and a master's degree, a wealth of running and experience traveling all around. That would be a fun episode, actually, to talk about all the things, all the places running took me. And two years in an actual teaching job. I waitressed at 99. I waitressed at Callahan's. It was a bar. I had all sorts of summer jobs. I worked at a running store in the Copley Place Mall. You know, I worked at Bill Rogers Running Center. I did a ton of things. I had jobs all the time, always trying to make money and pay the bills. And I'm someone that likes to work. As much as I was paralyzed with Molly's death and didn't want to return to 33 Pleasant Street, there got to a point where I needed to be busy. I've always felt like I need to be contributing. I don't think life is a boat ride that you just ride along. I look at all of my life and I was getting the bedroom ready today, you know, setting Gracie's bed up and cleaning up some things. And whenever I'm in the room that they shared, I cry because I thought they'd be in that room forever. I can't really talk about it. I just, I just get strong essences of Molly and I look where her bed used to be and her things are still on the wall. And I just struggle and get really sad and miss her. I miss her. Oh, I ache with the miss because I don't want it to be this way. I don't want to remember Molly. I want to call her on the phone, text her and say hi. So in analyzing all of the reasons I've done, the many things I've done and how I've ended up where I've ended up, my job journey fits the whole picture of Barb. It just fits the picture of Barb. I still oftentimes feel like I don't quite fit. Or if I say it, it doesn't have any credibility. You know, children believe me. Shouldn't we always trust children, right? <laughs> I find sometimes in, at CrossFit that I'll give a piece of advice and I get looked at like, oh, that could just be me. But, you know, I have a lot to offer and, and I love doing this because I can get so much of what's churning inside of me out. <laughs> and if you don't want to listen, you can turn it right off. <laughs> Yay. Perfect balance. And also, as I tell these stories, people come to mind. So Julie and Amy, who I taught health with, what wonderful times we had. When I think of Walker School, I think of Lisa, Lisa Doucette. Hi, Lisa wonderful teacher's assistant. And when I was doing my sabbatical, I got a sabbatical. I did a PE sabbatical. She would come out with the classes she was with and do all these PE games with us. I taught all these recess games and all this kind of stuff. It was so fun. So I think of her. I think of Sharon, the PE teacher at Beaver Meadow. She taught there forever. 
I think of my little Walker school crew. I think of Jenny Carlson and Heidi Fife and Melissa Noyes and Paul Barassa later on, Steve Rothenberg way back in the day, Clint, oh, Cindy LeBron and Cindy Merrill, Tracy, you know, they all come back and you see these people day after day, year after year, and it's a relatively small group. 9-11, I had just had Gracie and I was teaching at Walker and all of those people come back. It's funny, I was talking about that and a student reminded me that I had come into her classroom, Brittany Pelkey, well, was at Walker School when that happened. And I went around to all the classrooms to say what happened and to, because, you know, the teachers can't leave their rooms and we didn't have TVs on and it was just sort of a disastrous thing. It was a rough day, but you know, that was Walker School. Those were, that was our family. So I've had a lot of jobs since my job loss, actually, you know, VLAX. And that was a job I was asked to leave when I started working at 33 Pleasant. I was doing too much and I wasn't getting the VLAX done. And I kept, you know, no, no, I can do it. I can do it. I should have just taken the help. I should have just taken the help. Barbara, cut your students in half, let go of a class. And I wouldn't, I ended up getting let go. I was given chances and I didn't follow through. And it was heart-wrenching. I left 33 Pleasant. Molly died and I quit. I actually had quit just before Molly died, but that solidified it. So that was a job that was, you know, October to April, essentially was that job. In the time since Molly, the, you know, substitute teaching in bow and coaching, and then all that happened there. It's like just a nightmare. And this is when my friend Bethany says, you're just someone that's easy to pick on. And I don't, I don't quite know what that means. It makes me sound like a victim and that I don't ever, ever, ever want to come across that way. Have I been victimized? Of course, I think everyone has. And there are times when we play both roles. But in this process, I'm trying very hard to own what was my piece of it. In all of my jobs, my biggest issue was just showing up on time sometimes or always attending a staff meeting. There were, there were these things that I just really struggled with in the classroom with kids. I was 100% fine. My little office, I had a science classroom with the high school and the, the storage club, the office was big. It was like a closet in an office, I had a desk in there. And on any given day, I had five or six kids in there and they weren't my track athletes hanging out. They were the kids that might've flourished at second start, kids that were struggling, didn't fit in, having a hard day that would say, can I just hang out in your office? We had so much fun. I had a recliner in the big bay where there was, I had ground to ceiling windows and I had a recliner <laughs> that a student brought up and kids would just sit in the recliner and read. It was wonderful. I have a lot of heartbreak around former jobs that I've had, but I also loved every one of them and have wonderful memories from all of them. So as I end this podcast, I'm going to actually go out and do a bunch of stuff <laughs> and then head off to Florida. So thank you for listening. As always, if you ever worked with me and you want to share a story, please do, please. I really am trying to get my audience, my listening audience to be a bit more interactive. And you don't have to say who you are if you want to just share a story. You know, you can message me on social media. You can, you can comment on any of the podcast platforms that I'm on, by all means, it would be wonderful. If you always listen on a certain platform and you subscribe, that's helpful to me as well. I really do want to take this to the next level. And I'm hoping that the TV commercial piece and the, and my book coming out will just help. And it's not about me. It's not like I want to tell the world about Barbara Higgins. I want to talk about Molly. I want to talk about what it's like to live a life like I have lived and how it can be okay. That's what I want to do. Thank you for listening. Do something good for yourself. Do something kind for yourself. Do something nice for someone else after that. And as always, have a good day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and for supporting A Thousand Tiny Steps. I hope you enjoyed the episode and will continue to listen. Feel free to leave a review and share my stories with your friends. Also, please reach out if you have stories to share. I love hearing from and connecting with my listeners. If you would like to know what I'll be talking about down the road, you can find me on Instagram at barb underscore 444, on Facebook as Barb Higgins, and at my website, www.1000tinysteps.com.